Welcome back to the reading of the Surrender Experiment. I hope that you're enjoying everything. I have clumped this all together because there's another book that I'm really itching to read. And it's kind of like hand in hand with this book. And as you realize, we did go through the Untethered Soul and then Living Untethered. Now we're reading the Surrender Experiment. And um, there's another book by Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now, that I'm really itching to get to. So I've clumped these together so that we can kind of stream line and do like this summer understanding, you know, of body, mind and spirit, right? Me, myself and I, you know, going along this journey. Again, you guys don't have to listen to the book readings to understand the podcast and you don't have to listen to the podcast to listen to the readings. I put it all together because I reference the books often. Uh, And if I'm not mentioning the books, it is going on in the background as far as like exercises that we're doing in the podcast to try to be our best selves for me to try to be my best self and bring you on the journey with me. It's all part of the big picture and then just trying to get through life and trying to de-stress and trying to stay motivated and keep yourself uplifted and ready to rock and roll every day. You know, it's hard uh, to find that inner silence and that inner peace. And that's where we're at in this book right now. So I thought that it would be an awesome spot to let off the last episodes and to pick it up. It is timing right now at each episode is each segment or chapter is running about five to six minutes. So regardless of where you are and what you're doing, you can listen to it on a quick break or if you're driving someplace to drop somebody off or you've got errands that you're running and you're dropping yourself off and uh, you're cleaning your house or whatever it is. And because they're clumped together, you can listen to it all at once or you can space it out at your leisure, whatever it is that you're doing. And please, please feel free to um, share the episodes with your friends, uh, your family, anybody who you think could benefit from it. I really think that meditation and finding your inner space and inner Zen is the way of the future. And I am a huge fan of Michael A. Singer, uh, and I am so blessed to have found these books, and it's changing my life every day. Every day when I listen to The Untethered Soul and Living Untethered, and, you know, I've got all these curiosities about death and dying and, you know, that space and that, you know, the skin suit and understanding what it all means and how it comes together, Um It all is like this massive puzzle and it's all connected. And the further research I do, you know, I did just complete a class uh, online and it was in humanities and it was understanding life and art and literature and how it all comes together. And um, some of the research that's been done is phenomenal. But to hear this book, it's a firsthand account of how the discovery of oneself and that voice that's in your head and everybody has it. Everybody understands it, right? There's, there's there's questions about everything that, that flow all the time. And then there's this person, this author, who was brave enough to put it in these books and to let us know, this is what happened. I was curious. I, was, I had this question that kept coming up. This is where the energy went. This is how I felt. This is how I reacted to it. And it's just absolutely fascinating. So without further ado, I'm going to get started again. We're continuing today with Chapter 7, which is entitled Disconnecting the Panic Button. Mexico had been good for me, but it was now time to start my journey home. I was headed back to the north and at a day's end found a small lake off a dirt road where I could spend the night. It was so peaceful that I stayed there after my morning practices enjoying the water. It came time for my afternoon meditation center session, so I hiked up the hill and found a secluded spot to start my yoga postures. 
About halfway through my routine, I began to hear some voices in the distance. I started to get uncomfortable, but I wasn't about to give in to that scared person inside. I just relaxed more deeply into my yoga posture, and the anxiety subsided. The next sound that startled me was that of a snorting horse, a lot closer than the voices had been. I was convinced that these were the banditos. I soon heard both the voices and the horses a stone's throw from me. Relaxed was not exactly the word that came to mind. Scared, vulnerable, and terribly self-conscious was a much more accurate description of my state. Everything in me wanted to end my yoga session immediately and open my eyes to see what danger I'd gotten myself into. Well, everything except for the core of self-discipline that I had developed for riddling myself of that scared person inside of me. The command of steel came from behind my fears. No way was I going to miss the opportunity to transcend all this inner commotion. I closed my eyes tighter as, an if, and as if in an act of defiance, and I took a deep breath. I demanded a state of relaxation in the midst of the drama. When my usual set of yoga postures was complete, I normally sat for a half an hour meditation. I watched that voice pleading for permission to skip that step. After all, the horses had not gone anywhere. I could clearly hear their breathing right in front of me, interspersed with the periodic whispering of their riders. There really was no decision to be made. I had clearly seen that it was a scared person inside of me who was holding me back from where I was so desperately wanting to go. I needed to be free of him, so I took a deep breath and flowed into a full lotus position. I began the mew inside my belly in an in vain attempt to drown out what voice was trying to say. To me, it was like an act of commitment. What do you care about, outside or inside? When I finally opened my eyes, I saw two horses right in front of me. They couldn't have been more than 10 feet away. On top of these horses were two riders that looked more like ranch hands than banditos. They were smoking cigarettes, and one of them was sitting side saddle facing the other rider. When they saw that I was back in their world, they began to talk to me in Spanish. I was somehow surprised that I could understand most of what they were saying, and the very fact that they were talking to me was definitely a good thing. I began to feel relieved, and the series of events that transpired next left an indelible impression on my mind to stop letting that scared person run my life. At some point in our interaction, the ranch hands asked me if it was my van parked down by the lake. My mental voice immediately told me to be careful because they could rob me. I ignored that interlude and willingly reached my hand up. One of the riders offered to pull me onto his horse and ride me back to my van. I was a city boy, riding double on the back of a horse with a Mexican stranger while in my bathing suit was not an everyday occurrence for me. As I rode down the hill, a peace came over from head to toe. This experience was so beautiful, and I would have missed it had I listened to my scared self. When we reached my van, the cowboy began telling me that he and others worked this land for a rich landowner. He had said they were all very poor, and the landowner didn't even allow them to fish in the lake. He pointed the way to where they had lived and invited me to stop by before I left the next day. We said goodbye as though we'd been friends for years, and they turned their horses and rode off. I felt so open, so connected to the experience I was having. Though I was going through some very deep changes, I remember thanking life that night for such a special day. The pain and turmoil within me were beginning to subside, but the yearning for the absolute peace and silence continued to burn in my heart. The next morning, after my practices, I packed up to continue my journey northward. Before leaving, I decided to drive farther down the dirt road to see if I could find where the ranch hands had lived. I came upon an area where there were 15 to 20 adobe huts with thatched roofs. I had read about such things, but I'd never actually seen a mud hut with a roof made of straw. 
Before I could decide if I wanted to go any farther, one of my new friends from the day before had ran out to greet me. I parked my van and followed the excited cowboys. He introduced his new American friend, the villagers. I was stunned by how primitive everything was. The huts were dirt floored and had nothing but square openings for the windows. There were no doors in the door openings or windows in the window openings. Many of the people that I had met stared at me as though I'd never seen an American before. I soon found out that many of them had not. I don't think that the pestering voice in my head said one word for the hours that I was there. It was all so new to me. It was so natural, so down to earth. I sat in a hut with women breastfeeding their babies. I had never seen that before. I noticed I actually felt ashamed that my culture had been so distorted in nature that natural things were no longer natural. Once we were back outside, we continued our tour of the small village. When we approached my friend's hut, he asked me if I knew how to ride a horse. I told him it had been years, but that I had ridden before. What I didn't tell him was that the last time I rode, I was 12, and it was at summer camp with an English saddle. He then did the most unexpected thing. He handed me the reins of his horse and pointed to an open field. This was no time or place to be timid. I stuck my sandal into the stirrup and swung myself into the saddle, just as though I knew I was doing. Just as though I knew what I was doing. I had always thought it would be wild to gallop a horse across an open field. Somehow, that dream was about to be realized in the middle of Mexico where I knew absolutely nobody. I got used to the horse while some of the villagers gathered to watch, and then I rode like the wind across an expansive field. I was really flying high, very exhilarated compared to the strict Zen discipline to which I had been holding myself. I spent a few more hours discussing American life with some very inquisitive villagers and then began to bid them farewell. I was invited to stay for dinner, but it was time for my evening practices. I remembered that my friend had told me that they were not allowed to fish, even though they were struggling for food. I went to my van and pulled out a large supply of brown rice and dried beans that I had stored under the back seat. I handed them all over to the women preparing the food. The women were so appreciative that it almost made me cry. This stuff meant nothing to me and so much to them. This was another one of those life lessons that I never forgot, the joy of helping people. Before I drove off, they all surrounded my van to say goodbye. I had lived in silence and solitude with no human contact for almost a month. Now I was a celebrity. How did this happen? To me, there was no doubt about how it happened. I had let go of myself and something very special that had followed. I was willing to face loneliness and fear and not grab it for relief, yet something happened on its own without my doing or even asking for it. The seeds of a great experiment were being planted. Was it possible that life had more to give us than we could ever take for ourselves. Chapter 8. Unexpected Inspiration I had grown a lot through my experiences in Mexico. Learning to embrace life as it unfolded around me was new to me, and the results had been very freeing. By the time I had returned to Gainesville, my heart and my mind were much more at peace. Problem was, I had no place to live. My last residence had been in the woods by the lime pit east of town, so I returned to that secluded setting and lived there in my van. All I needed in my life was solitude, the discipline of my ever-increasing practices, and a minimal amount of food. I realized that the probability of finishing my doctoral degree was rapidly decreasing. I had only had a few courses left, but there were qualifying exams as well as dissertation. Nothing was left in me that wanted to be an economics professor. 
I wanted to explore inside, deep inside. The depths of my meditations were all that I cared about. The chairman of the Department of Economics, Dr. Goffman, was like a father to me. I loved and respected him a great deal, and he encouraged me to finish my degree. He thought I was just going through a phase in my youth, and I would come out of it soon. He kept me on my fellowship and pushed me at least to finish my coursework. Out of respect for him, I could drive into town periodically and go to class, but not very often. I'd eventually learn that everything in life was something to teach you, and that's it. It's all for your growth. But I was not ready to see that yet. To me, there was my meditations, and then there was everything else. Though I definitely wasn't seeing my schoolwork as relevant to my inner growth, I had a very illuminating experience associated with one of my courses. The professor of the course was a respected economist and economist and did not and not at all the liberal type. I missed a lot of classes, and when I did show up, I was barefooted in jeans. I doubt that I was his favorite student. One day he asked me if I'd actually expected to receive a good grade in the course. He explained that I had put out just enough effort to do well on the exams, but that my absences and lack of participation in class did not provide the basis for a high grade. I knew we had a final paper left to write, so I told him I would put in the extra effort into that paper, and I'd appreciate it if he would base my grade solely on my exams and the quality of that paper. He said he would take it into consideration. The time came to write the final paper for the course. I knew my mental state was not conducive to going to the library and trying to learn enough to write a great paper. I had been meditating a lot, and my mind was very still. No way was I going to spend days researching and thinking about the topic. I would have to find a different method if I was going to write this paper. One evening, I gathered up a bunch of writing pads and a few pens. After meditation, I lit the kerosene lantern and sat at the fold-out table in my van. I began by telling myself that I really didn't care about what grade I got in the class since I probably wouldn't finish my degree anyway. This removed any mental or emotional pressure. I then told myself just to start writing whatever I thought about the topic. I had no books to refer to, just the natural logic of clear, unpressured mind. I began to write and thoughts began to grow. At some point in the process, a flash of inspiration welled up inside of me. I went from not knowing what I was going to do with the paper to knowing exactly what I was going to write. It was as though a cloud of knowing instantly formed back behind the quiet mind. It happened as fast and as powerful as a flash of lightning. At first, no thoughts were involved. It was more of a feeling, just a definitive knowing of how, of knowing where the paper was going and how to get there. Then the thoughts began to form. They came slowly at first, and then they poured into my mind. I still had to pull them together into a logical flow, but the seeds were all there. It was an amazing process to watch. I wrote and I wrote. Notepad after notepad became filled with a totally logical presentation that began with a premise, laid out its argument, and ended with a conclusion. Along the way, there were graphs to present, logical relationships, and there were references and facts that I had previously read or heard in class. These facts would need to be polished and footnoted later, so I simply left a space for them and kept on writing what was created in my mind. I stopped for nothing. There was no worrying or judgment of good or bad. I just allowed the process to unfold. When the artists create a work, they first get the inspiration and then they bring it down to the physical plane. That process is exactly what happened to me the night alone in my van. The inspiration for the entire paper came all at once and then my mind digested it and gave it form. Instead of a sculpture, a painting, or a symphony, a work of art was an economic treatise. It became that I, I rooted it where art had come from. The medium of expression was logical 
thinking instead of marble or paint. I had no idea what that spark of inspiration, where it had come from. I only knew that in the flash of a moment, I had all the material that I needed to write a doctoral level paper. I took the next few days to clean up the rough draft, type it, and turn it in. The final type paper was over 30 pages long. Not only did I receive an A for that course, but when my professor returned my paper, he asked me if I would consider doing my dissertation under him. I was humbled. As evidenced from this recounting 40 years later, the experience that night had a profound effect on me. I had clearly seen the difference between creative inspiration and logical thought. I knew where thoughts had come from, but where did this inspiration come from? That came from a much deeper place than I had witnessed the thoughts. It came spontaneously, in total silence, with no effort or commotion. No matter how hard I may have tried, I could have never written that paper based solely on the efforts of my logical mind. I wondered if there was a way to tap into the brilliance of that inspiration on a regular basis. It would be years, but eventually I would learn that one can constant one can constantly live in that state of creative inspiration. Chapter 8, The Promised Land It had been months since my deep meditation experience in the Ocala National Forest. The remnants of that experience were a constant flow of energy to the point between my eyebrows and the burning in my heart to go even deeper within. Neither of these forces subsided over time. In fact, the yearning to go deeper kept increasing on a daily basis. It was like having fallen madly in love and not being able to see your beloved. I began to contemplate completely dropping out and entering a life of solitude. My coursework was done, and nothing was forcing me to take my qualifying exams right away. Plus, by that time, I had been pretty certain that I would never take those exams. I determined that I needed a place away from everything and everyone in order to become totally focused on my practices. I knew I couldn't just keep camping by the lime pit forever, but I wasn't ready to start looking for a secluded place of my own. I decided to just keep my eyes open to see if anything would come up by itself. Something did. I was filling up my van one day when out of the blue, the gas station attendant asked me where I lived. I told him that I had been living in my van for a while, but I was hoping to find a piece of land in the country. He said he'd come across a beautiful place northwest of Gainesville that had five-acre lots for sale. I got directions, and I went on my way. A few days later, I drove out to the place and found April Gift Estates. It was in a heavily wooded area, about 10 miles north of town, and it consisted of 21 five-acre lots and a couple of dirt rows. Very few lots had been sold, and I didn't see a single person in the entire time that I was touring. The place was so peaceful and natural that I drove around almost in a trance. It was just perfect. I soon came upon a couple of adjoining lots that were part of the woods and part of the field. This was exactly what I wanted. I parked my car and I walked through the woods onto the interior field. The feeling of going from the woods to sudden openness was unbelievable. There was a rush of light and a feeling of expansiveness. I walked up a rolling hill to the fence on the north side of the property. The property bordered a beautiful pasture that sloped down to the wood-lined wood stream. 
The entire north side of the lot overlooked that breathtaking view. It reminded me of how Homer described the Elysian fields. I meandered back into the woods and found a spot under a tree where I could see the interior field open in front of me and the beautiful pasture land to my right. The woods were quiet and felt protecting. It was like being in the womb. The moment I sat down, I was drawn into deep meditation. The moment I came back, I knew I was home. I had never bought a piece of land before, but I did have some funds. When I graduated from college, my father had given me what remained in my college account. He wanted me to take full responsibility for my postgraduate education. Since I did both my master's degree and my doctorate work under full fellowship, I had been able to save almost all of the $15,000 that he had given me. It was now time to spend it. I decided to try to buy both of the lots that included the interior field. That would give me plenty of seclusion. Before contacting the owner, I picked a maximum number that I was willing to pay for the 10 acres. The number was significantly less than the asking price, but I told myself that if the seller wouldn't come down to my price, it just wasn't meant to be. I was completely at peace with either outcome. As it turned out, the sense of detachment gave me the edge that I needed to successfully negotiate for the lots. I succeeded in the purchase, but I didn't feel the sense of joy. What I felt was a sense of resolute determination. What lie ahead of me was not going to be easy. I had already committed so much of myself to exploring what was beyond me. Now I was going to commit to everything. Chapter 10, Building a Sacred Hut. Bob Gould and I had been friends since my first day of high school. We had both moved to Florida from up north and we were new kids entering the 10th grade. We bonded immediately and remained good friends all the way through college. Bob was the handy type, the kind of kid who would always excel in shop class. When it came time to build a meditation hut on my land, he jumped at the opportunity. Neither Bob nor I had ever built anything like a hut to actually live in. I was good with my hands and had been a sports car mechanic while in high school. But to build a small house, Bob and I were way out of our league. We reached out to a college friend, Bobby Altman. Bobby's credentials were not that he had actually built a house before, but that he had just finished his master's degree in architecture. At least he had the theory of how to design and build something. How hard could it be to build a small hut where I could go into solitude for a while? Apparently, Bobby Altman didn't think that it would be hard at all. He quickly designed plans for the hut, which included a balsa wood model. I remember the first time I saw his design. I literally thought he was crazy. This was not just a small, simple one-person hut for meditation. This was a wedge-shaped house with a stunning front glass that spanned 16 feet wide and rose 20 feet high. And to be perfectly honest, I had been envisioning more of a box with a door and a few windows. How were three college grads who had never built anything before going to build this? Bobby Altman insisted that the house was going to be easy to build. I wasn't so sure, but Bob Guild was all for it. He thought that it would be a fun challenge for the three of us to live on the land in tents and build it. I remember that I didn't see it that way. I'd already had a full-time challenge getting back to my beloved place of absolute stillness and peace. But if I had to build this architecturally designed masterpiece of a meditation hut to get there, then so be it. We jumped right in with the abandonment of a reason that belongs only to young hippies and crazy people. It was an amazing experience. I had very little money left to build Bobby Altman's chalet. To keep the cost minimum, both Bobs agreed that we could use rough sawn lumber instead of the finished lumber you buy at a lumber yard. And as fate would have it, there was a sawmill just a few miles down the highway from my land. Griffiths 
lumber and sawmill. James Griffiths and his wife were real southern country folk, not long hairs like the three of us. We got sideways looks from pretty much everyone whenever we went to pick up the lumber. Aside from our hair, we stood out because of what we were ordering. We started with 11 cypress columns that would form the support structure of the house. At 29 feet, you might as well call them trees. James Griffith allowed us to hand select the straightest trees off of the logging truck when it arrived. We got to watch workers strap each of the trees to the giant mill and cut them down six inches per side or give or take a half an inch. It was real back-to-earth feeling, which the actual trees being turned into the backbone of your house. In time, Mr. Griffiths began to open up to us. One day, he invited the three of us to dinner at his house, which was adjacent to the mill. This was a big deal since we had been living in tents and cooking what we could over an open fire. It was particularly special for me because I had been living out of my van or in a tent for almost half a year. It wasn't just a matter of a home-cooked meal. It was going to a real house that was going to be a novelty for me. The Griffiths' house was a warm country home. The walls were pecky cypress milled long ago on site. Mrs. Griffiths had cooked up a southern meal with plenty of vegetables since she had heard that I was a vegetarian. The conversations were warm and friendly, and it really felt as though we were all family, and at one point Mr. Griffiths said something I will never forget. He said, Before we met you three, we used to think that hippies were the dirtiest, filthiest things on earth. You know, we've really come to love you boys. It was another one of those beautiful moments that started me thinking, where were all these unbelievable experiences coming from? Somehow, deeply touching experiences kept coming from the most unexpected places. It was really starting to blow me away. As days turned into weeks, the house began to take shape. Once the outside siding was up, you could really begin to feel the inside space. Bobby Altman then posed a question I'd never thought of, which, which of us was going to do the electrical wiring? Though I had never done such a thing, I volunteered. Bobby handed me a small book on electrical wiring from one of his courses and left me on my own. His confidence in my ability to do the entire electrical system for the house rather astounded me. But if he thought I could do it, then I could. And I did. A great spiritual teacher once said, Every day, bite off more than you can chew and chew it. Life was teaching me some very important lessons. We laid pinewood floors throughout the house, put cedar decks on both the front and back, and hired a plumber to install the exposed cast iron plumbing pipes for the bathroom area. By then, the house had taken on a life of its own. We had put our hearts and souls into building that house, and we were very proud of what we'd accomplished. To me, it had started out as a project to build a quick and simple meditation hut, and it turned into a one-of-a-kind experience for life. But it wasn't the one that I'd longed for. All I really wanted was to go into solitude and work on my heart's only desire, absolute peace, stillness, and freedom. With the house finished, the time for that work had finally arrived.